Well, friends, as you take your seats, if you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, found in the New Testament. That's the second half of the Bible. Uh, this morning, we're looking at Mark chapter 16. Uh, you can either turn there in your copy of the Bible, or you can find it in the digital worship guide. Uh, lastly, if you don't own a physical Bible uh, and would like one, we actually do have these black hardback Bibles available for you at our welcome table. Uh, they are free, and so if you don't have a copy of God's Word, please feel free to take one of these. Uh, it'd be our pleasure, our privilege, in order to get a copy of the Scriptures into your hands. Uh, this morning, we are reading from Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 8, this wonderful account of the empty tomb and resurrection. And so... Please give your attention now to God's word. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, that there you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Father, this Eastern morning, as you have raised Jesus from the dead and thus given hope to the world, I pray that we would know some of that hope today, that through the reading now and preaching of your word, um, that you would help us to think about the hope that Jesus offers and to know the hope that Jesus offers and to live out of the tremendous hope that Jesus offers us. We thank you. We ask that you would bless this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've entitled this morning's gospel message, Empty Tomb Full of Hope. Now, today Christians are gathered all around the world to worship a crucified and risen Christ. And this is why there are two days in the Christian calendar set aside in particular remembrance and rejoicing on these two days, the death of Jesus on Good Friday and the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. Now, these two events are the pillars of the Christian faith. Without them, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, our faith and therefore our hope as Christians has no basis and no foundations. Think about it like this. If I asked you which wing on an airplane was more important, the left one or the right one, what's the correct answer? You don't have to be a pilot. You don't have to be an engineer in order to figure this one out. Imagine you're in the middle of a flight. There's extreme and sudden unexpected turbulence and the captain announces that one of the wings of the aircraft has broken off. 
How many of you in that moment would stop the flight attendant to ask, well, which wing was it? It simply wouldn't matter because both are necessary to keep the plane in the air. You need both. Who cares if it's the left or the right? So it is with the Christian message. Our faith and thus our hope rests on two things, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And this is why the tomb being empty is just as important theologically and historically as Jesus dying on the cross. You see, it's not enough to just believe Jesus was a miracle maker and a wonder worker or to believe that Jesus did supernatural things or that he taught as an enlightened teacher, a type of ethics and a type of love and sacrifice. At the end of the day, no matter how many great things Jesus taught, no matter how many great things he did, if his body is still in the tomb, then Christians have no hope. Believers are fools to be pitied. But it's precisely because the tomb is empty that you and I can be full of hope this morning. It's because Jesus left the tomb that he can now come into your life and give you hope for it today and for it tomorrow and for the day after that into eternity. The question is, would you like that kind of hope? If so, you need to believe the words of the angel in verse 7 who said, You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. You see, the angel is affirming, highlighting both those pillars of the Christian faith. First, Jesus was crucified. He died. He died for you. Because he died, if you trust him, your sins have been paid for. You are forgiven. But secondly, Jesus is risen. He is alive. And because he's alive, his resurrection is the pledge and the promise that he will restore and renew everything again one day. Dear friends, this morning, I'd like to meditate with you just on one simple truth. Because the tomb is empty, you can be full of hope today. Because the tomb is empty, you can be full of hope today. You see, in our passage in Mark 16, we're told that three women go to the tomb early on Sunday morning to anoint the crucified body of Jesus. And so verse 1 tells us they are Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. Now, the account here is already a bit interesting because it's not who you would expect to be there. If you've been reading the Gospel of Mark 16 chapters long, from the very beginning, from chapter 1, Mark has been telling the story of Jesus and his disciples. And so you'd expect his disciples to be the first visitors at the tomb, but they're actually nowhere to be found. In fact, the last time that you heard about, the last time you read about the disciples was two chapters ago in chapter 14. And in chapter 14, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane when the Roman soldiers come to arrest him and they take him. And all Mark simply writes about the disciples is this. And they all left him and fled. Then throughout this passion crucifixion narrative in chapter 15, the disciples aren't mentioned once. They're nowhere to be seen. And the last thing we read about these towering disciples is actually that they're cowering disciples. They're not faithful, they're fearful. It makes you stop and think about the historical validity of Mark's account, particularly about the resurrection story. 
because Mark doesn't present the disciples in a very flattering light. You would assume a religion that's based on the centrality of a man being resurrected and based on the authority of these disciples, you would think that the story would put the disciples there at the scene, the first ones there, but that's not the case at all. That Sunday morning, the disciples were hiding like cowards and they had abandoned Jesus in his hour of greatest need. You see, these disciples would rather deny Jesus than suffer with him. Let me ask you, how can a religion based on the leadership of these kinds of men gain any traction or any following in the ancient world? People would think these are the founders of Christianity. Here's the thing, though. Although the blemish on the disciples could and might bother other people, it didn't bother Mark. He simply recorded what happened because Mark is far more concerned with presenting the facts as they are than he is with making sure the disciples look good and impressive and were believable. You see, in our uh, day and age, Mark would be that kind of guy who posts on social media without using any filters. I know that's a sin for some of you. But he is completely real and honest. In Mark's gospel, you find no edited reality. On that Sunday morning, there was no trace of the disciples gathered around the tomb in any kind of heroic, exemplary faith. But who was there? Mark tells us it was three women. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome. These women were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And that may not seem like a big deal to us, but you must understand in the time of the Bible and the culture of the Bible, legally, the witness of women, the testimony of women in court was considered inferior. In fact, it was so disregarded, it was considered to be the same level as that of a slave or a criminal. It wasn't to be trusted or received with any credibility. Now, it's interesting then that Mark would highlight that three women were the first witnesses, considering Mark knew this about the legal culture. And so again, we need to ask, why doesn't Mark present us an edited report that would make the claim of an empty tomb more believable, more easy to swallow for his readers? Because if this whole thing is made up, isn't Mark trying to get people to buy the fact that this man rose from the dead? He doesn't seem to be doing a very good job of it. But it's actually because Mark is far more concerned with telling us what actually happened than with what others might or might not believe. And so Mark actually risks his account being dismissed and rejected. And he'd rather do that than jeopardize his own integrity and mess with historical accuracy. See, Mark is intent on telling us what happened and how it happened, not in a more believable way, not in a more acceptable way, but in the right way, the way it happened. And if anything, this shows us that the Bible's insistence on an empty tomb, on a bodily risen Jesus, isn't just a matter of symbolic significance. You know, the resurrection isn't uh, merely metaphorical. It's fully factual. It really happened, and it really happened like this. The tomb really was empty. And if believers are to be filled with real hope, we must also insist on this. And that's what Mark would want from us. Now, before we move on, let me just point out one more detail about the historical veracity of the resurrection and empty tomb. 
If you've been reading through in the Gospel of Mark throughout his entire account, you begin to notice that toward the end, there, there's a, a flurry of names. As Mark begins to describe the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, he actually gets more specific, not more vague. And it's really interesting that he does this. I mean, can you ever recall telling a story or making a claim to somebody and in an attempt to exaggerate the point, maybe in an attempt to look more impressive yourself, you actually became more vague with the details. Maybe you were boasting about something and you said, you know, after my performance, some people came up to me and told me it was the best they had ever seen. In fact, some people told me they were even moved to tears. And you'll keep it vague. And you'll say, some people, because in reality, it wasn't some people, it was one person. And if you were really honest and specific, you would have to say, my mom told me that my performance was the best she had ever seen and she was moved to tears. You know, sometimes we stay away from details in order to exaggerate. We get more vague in order to embellish. But what do we see Mark doing here at the end of the gospel? The people, they don't become more shadowy, but they become increasingly clear. He brings them into the light. Mark begins to name drop profusely. He mentions Simon of Cyrene. Mark says he carried the cross and you can ask him about it. And if you can't find him, ask any one of his sons, Alexander or Rufus. Then he recalls Joseph of Arimathea who came to collect the body of Jesus. And he says, oh, him? It's easy to find him. He's one of the respected members of the council. Go find them and you'll find Joseph. Then finally, in Mark 16, he records Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome as the women who discovered the tomb. Why? Because if anybody was questioning what he said, go find these three women. They'll tell you exactly what they saw. Mark name drops because these were real people who participated in real events. Dear friends, here's the point I'd, I'd just like you to consider with me this morning. When you actually pay careful attention to our passage you see that to believe the empty tomb isn't just a matter of faith. It's also a matter of facts. The tomb really was empty. Why? Because Jesus really did rise from the dead. You know, Mark Twain, Mark Twain famously said this. He said, faith is believing in what you know ain't true. Now, some of you may think that's what faith is, but respectfully, that's not what Christian faith is. Faith and facts are not opposed to one another in Christianity. If the tomb is empty, then we can be full of hope. But if the tomb is not empty, then the only thing Christians are full of is baloney. Now, in, in the accounts of the empty tomb and the resurrection, there, there's something very interesting that we so often overlook. And this insight is actually from Kathy Keller. And she points out that our story tells us that these three women, they make preparations to go visit and anoint the body of Jesus, except they forget to prepare one thing. In all of the uh, rustling and the rushing to prepare the ointments, they forget to arrange that somebody big and strong meet them at the tomb in order to move the stone from the grave. And so they ask one another in verse three, they say, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And they're wondering and they're wondering and they get there, but their fears are quickly relieved because in verse four, it says, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. And then Mark records, it was very large. Now stop for a moment and think about this question. 
Why was the stone rolled back? Now, we often assume the answer, but when you do, you actually miss out on a major point of the story. Why was the stone rolled back? And perhaps you assume, well, it's because that's how Jesus left the tomb. But many of us make that assumption, but is that really true? You see, in John's version of the account of the resurrection, after Jesus resurrects, we read in John 20, it says this, on the evening of that first day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, the doors being locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Jesus just appeared. It turns out he doesn't need doors to enter a room. He walks right through them. It reminds me of one of the lines from my favorite movie of all time, Back to the Future. If you remember that movie, right at the end, when Doc Brown shows up once again to pick up Marty McFly and they get in the car with his girlfriend, Jennifer, and Marty says, Doc, you need a backup. We don't have enough room to go and hit 88 miles an hour. And Doc Brown says, roads, where we're going, we don't need roads. It's an iconic and memorable line. And I can just imagine Jesus saying to his disciples, doors, where I'm going, I don't need doors. Because Jesus in his newly glorified, resurrected body does not need help, human or divine, to enter rooms or to leave tombs. So then why was the stone rolled away if it wasn't to let Jesus out? Let me propose this. Could it be that the stone was rolled away to let the women in? You see, it was only as the stone was rolled away that the women could actually see with their eyes that Jesus was indeed risen and the tomb was empty. I mean, imagine with me for a second, you were there with the three women. So it was the four of you. You guys gather together early Sunday morning. Everyone shows what ointments they've brought, what spices they've prepared. And so you head over to the entrance of the tomb. And there you arrive and you see the angel and he looks big and strong. And so you politely ask him for his help. And you say, we're here to anoint the body of Jesus. Look, here are my spices. But the angel politely responds to you. He says, put that away. You don't need to do that. He has risen. He is not here. How would you respond? Most likely with a little bit of skepticism. Mm, you sure you just don't want to check? You know, we were here the other day when he was crucified. He looked pretty dead to us. We wouldn't believe. But even if you did believe him, oh, he's alive, he's risen, then wouldn't you insist? Well, then don't you need to hurry up and move the stone? I mean, if Jesus is alive, you should open the door for him. It would be a shame if Jesus resurrected from the dead, but then he died again because he couldn't get oxygen. Now, now, here's the thing. God could have kept the stone rolled over the tomb and insisted that these women just have more faith. He could have said, you don't need to see the tomb. You don't need to see if his body is here or not. Have more faith. Trust and believe. Take my word. And so many of us, we treat Christianity in this way. Don't think, don't question, just trust, blindly believe. But that's not how God himself responds. What does God do? God removes the tomb so that they can trust and verify. They can believe and they can see. They can have faith and facts. And he says to the women, see for yourself. 
The tomb is empty. The resurrection is real. Kathy Keller goes on to write, To my surprise, I realized that the stone needed to be rolled away, not to let Jesus out, but to let us in. Trust, but verify. Ours is a faith founded on an event that took place in space, time, and history, and it began with an angel politely opening the tomb so that we could look into the empty space and see that he was no longer there. Dear friends, Christian hope rests on the fact of an empty tomb. This morning, whether you consider yourself a believer or an unbeliever, a seeker or a skeptic, the empty tomb is something to wrestle with. But still the question remains for all of us. How does Christ's empty tomb fill us with hope today? And let's start here. How did it change the earliest disciples and start a 2000 year old global movement that continues even today? You see, whatever you think of Christianity and the gospel message, here are the undeniable facts. Three women saw an empty tomb. They then told the disciples who verified it for themselves. And then something happened that changed the rest of their lives and altered the trajectory of all human history as we know it. What was that? They not only saw the empty tomb, but they saw and encountered the resurrected, risen Jesus. And in seeing him, they were filled with life-changing hope. A hope so incredible that these disciples, remember, earlier they had abandoned Jesus at his hour of greatest need. They were deathly afraid to be associated with him. And yet all of a sudden, they became the most faithful ambassador, spreading his message, telling the news of his resurrection. And at the end of their lives, they were all willing to suffer and die for him. What happened? What was the hope the empty tomb and the resurrection gave them? Because whatever that is, that same hope can fill you today. Here's the hope they discovered. And seeing Jesus raised from the dead and seeing the impossible made possible, they knew Jesus had the power and the plan to restore and renew everything wrong in the world. They saw the resurrected Jesus and they thought if he can reverse sin's curse over death and bring new life from it, then there's nothing in his created universe that he cannot reverse. Consider this, everything that sin's curse has ruined in you, in your life, in the life of a loved one, in this world, Jesus can bring about something new and beautiful from it. That's the hope of the resurrection, that he will do exactly that. You see, friends, Easter Sunday reminds us where there is hostility in the world, he will one day bring reconciliation. Where there is division, he will one day bring unity. Where there is hurting, he will one day bring healing. Where there is hatred, he will one day bring love. To the sick, he'll bring health. To the fearful, he'll bring peace. To the grieving, he'll bring joy. To the lonely, he'll bring comfort. The lost will be found. The broken will be fixed. The wounded will be bound. And the weak will be strengthened. This is the hope of an empty tomb and a risen Savior who promises that everything bad will be made good. Everything wrong will be made right. Everything ugly will be made beautiful in its time. Dear friends, would you like to be filled with this kind of hope today? 
kind of hope that doesn't flicker today and go out tomorrow, but grows stronger and brighter each and every day from now into eternity, where nothing in this life can snub out this hope, no scary diagnosis you receive from the doctors, no uncertainty of the fearful and anxious unknowns of the future, no loss you experience despite the pain and sorrow it brings. This is an enduring, steadfast, and true hope. You can be filled with this hope today because the tomb was empty then. Because Jesus lives, you can face today and tomorrow into eternity. Please pray with me.